0: Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself the most basic of all biblical questions, What is the Christian Gospel? What did Jesus challenge His audiences to believe as the Gospel or Good News? What did he mean by the phrase so often found on his lips, the kingdom of God? When did you last hear a preacher or evangelist invite you to repent and believe in the gospel about the kingdom of God, as Jesus invited his audiences to do in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15? We've been pointing out that the very purpose of Jesus' whole mission as the founder of the Christian religion was the preaching of the kingdom. There's a most important verse in Luke 4, verse 43, which summarizes for us in a very simple fashion why Jesus thought he was preaching what he preached. In other words, it tells us what the Messiah himself understood to be the main purpose of his whole ministry. In that verse, Luke 4, verse 43, Jesus said, I must preach the gospel about the kingdom of God, to the other cities also. That's the reason why God commissioned me. Now, that's the most illuminating verse. It tells us in no uncertain terms that Jesus was pursuing a single goal. That goal was the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so, in order to understand Jesus, it is absolutely clear that we must begin by understanding his main topic, that's to say, the kingdom of God. We're continuing to discuss what Jesus would have meant by the term kingdom of God, and it's actually an easy question to answer because we know from so many sources, and primarily from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, but also from contemporary literature, that's to say literature contemporary with Jesus himself, we know that the kingdom of God had a very special and definite sense. It meant that national hope of Israel, the hope for peace on earth when God would send a redeemer and a savior and a new political leader to govern the earth and to produce an era of prosperity and peace for all. This is most certainly what Jesus and his audiences would have understood by the kingdom of God. Now it makes no sense at all that Jesus would come into Galilee as we read in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 and announce the kingdom of God and command people to believe in the good news about that kingdom if in fact his audience had no idea at all about what he meant by the gospel of the kingdom of God that would be a disastrously bad method for any teacher to introduce a term without any explanation and then urge his followers to believe in that term, namely the kingdom. Our New Testament documents make sense only if Jesus uses language and terminology that could be grasped by his audience. Now, certainly there were many things that Jesus had to explain to them, but at the beginning of his ministry he assumes that they are going to know what is meant by the gospel of the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God was the central theme of all the Old Testament prophets. They had envisaged a time coming when God would send a special agent, in fact a king uniquely endowed with the Holy Spirit, filled with wisdom and knowledge and understanding, and this agent whom God would send would be responsible for establishing a brand new government based and headquartered in Jerusalem. This in fact was the national hope of Israel at the time when Jesus began his ministry. And so there can be no doubt that by kingdom of God Jesus would have meant what all the prophets of Israel meant, what the whole of the national heritage of Israel had implied by the term kingdom. The kingdom, of course, meant a kingdom. That's hardly surprising. And that kingdom idea was based on the famous prophecies found in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, where we find that after a succession of four world empires, there would be established on earth a final royal and divine empire, headed by the one known as the Son of Man. And, of course, we all know that Jesus used the Son of Man as his favorite self-designation. He obviously saw himself as fulfilling the role of that Son of Man. And the Son of Man was an alternative expression for the Messiah, and that Messiah was to be given power over the whole earth in the rule which is to be called the kingdom of God, that fifth empire of Daniel 12, verse 2. Now, we must, of course, point out that that kingdom would be a real empire on the earth, not some ethereal or abstract kingdom in the hearts of men, but a government superseding previous earthly kingdoms. The kingdom of God was said to be under the whole heaven, Daniel 7.27, and it would extend its authority to the the far reaches of the earth, as we read in the famous Messianic Psalm number 2. There we read of the Messiah asking God, and God saying to the Messiah, by way of a prophecy of the future, ask of me and I will give you the ends of the earth as your inheritance. Now in that same psalm it's entirely clear that the messianic kingdom would be established by a direct intervention from God himself. We're reading there in verse 4 of Psalm 2 and we find a situation where God is sitting in heaven and actually laughing at the feeble efforts of human nations to resist the coming of the kingdom of God. Psalm 2 verse 4 says, The Lord scoffs at them. That's to say, he's going to scoff at them when this prophecy is finally fulfilled. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And then God goes on to say, as we unveil the future here, according to this Psalm 2, As for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain we know, of course, that Zion means the geographical Jerusalem in the Middle East. It's a definite city in a definite place. And then in verse 7, we read that the Messiah is going to say, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. That's of God himself, then. He, God, said to me, the Messiah, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth is your possession. Now, it's most important to note that that is not a promise for the present time. In other words, there's no text of Scripture which suggests that the church is going to take over rulership of the world this side of the second coming, before the second coming. The very contrary is true. The Bible gives us a picture of the Christian church being reduced to very small numbers when Christ returns. There's going to be no triumphal command of the world by the Christian church in this age, and any churches which have have thought that it was their privilege to take over and take charge of the world this side of the Second Coming have made a sad mistake. The Bible does not say that we can rule the world before Christ comes back, but it does indeed say that the Christians are going to be privileged to share rulership with Jesus over the earth when he returns. Now that's the point that Jesus was trying to get across in the parable we find in the 19th chapter of Luke beginning at verse 11. We read there that while they were listening to these things, that's to say while the audience was listening in on the conversation between Jesus and Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Now, of course, it's entirely reasonable that they would think just that, because they associated the kingdom of God with its headquarters in Jerusalem. That's where the Davidic throne was due to be restored. That's where, according to all the prophets of Israel, the kingdom of God would be established with its headquarters in a new Jerusalem, but a Jerusalem not divorced from this earth. It would be a Jerusalem renewed and renovated, but still in the same geographical location as the present city of Jerusalem. And so when the crowd heard that Jesus was close to Jerusalem, they obviously and naturally thought that this was the time for the great establishment of the kingdom of God by the Messiah. And of course they were disciples of Jesus because they believed that he was the Messiah and that therefore he was the one qualified and appointed to establish that kingdom in Jerusalem. And so in verse 12 of Luke 19, Jesus told them a parable. He said that a certain nobleman, and he obviously equates himself with that nobleman in the parable, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom, or in other words, the authority to rule as a king, to receive a kingdom for himself, and then to return. And immediately we see the kingdom of God here associated with the return of Jesus. And then the Messiah in the parable under the name nobleman, called ten of his servants and allotted each one a certain amount of money. And he exhorted them to do business with that talent or with that money until he came back. And again we see the return of Jesus, the time when he comes back, associated with the coming kingdom. But his citizens, in verse 14, hated him. That, of course, pictures the Jews who generally did not Accept Jesus as their Messiah. And these Jews are pictured here as saying, we do not want this man to be king over us. And so then in verse 15, it came about that when the nobleman returned, after having received his kingdom, he ordered that those servants to whom he had given the money be called to him in order that he might find out what business they had accomplished. Now the first one appeared before the master and said, Master, your mina, this quantity of money you gave me, in other words, has made ten minas more. And then the nobleman says to the slave, Well done, good slave. Because you've been faithful in a very little thing, take your position now in authority over ten cities. There we have then the establishment of the kingdom of God. The time has arrived in the parable when the king has duly returned from heaven, having received the kingdom. And he's then in a position to allot various responsibilities to his faithful servants. And he gives them then the privilege of ruling over ten cities. Now, the next slave had done rather less with his talent, but he was nevertheless allotted a position over five cities. Be in authority over five cities, the Messiah says, when he returns bringing the kingdom with him. Now, it's obvious from this parable that the kingdom of God belongs to the time when Jesus will have returned from heaven. and that's exactly what we find in many passages of Scripture. A little later in the Gospel of Luke, we find Jesus giving an account of all the extraordinary events which are due to happen leading up to his second coming. Down in 31 of chapter 21 of Luke, he says to the disciples, when you see all these things happening, that's to say, all these signs and various events which would point to the imminent arrival of the kingdom, when you see all these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is about to come. That's where the kingdom of God belongs then. It belongs at the second coming. The point of the second coming of Jesus is in fact to inaugurate the kingdom of God on the earth with its headquarters in Jerusalem. That's the time then that according to this uh, parable in Luke 19 he allots authority over cities to his various followers. Now that theme of co-regency or co-rulership with Jesus is very prominent in the New Testament. From one end of the New Testament to the other we find promises made by Jesus that his followers will indeed become the kingdom of God. They will be the members of the royal household when Jesus comes back, armed with the authority to establish that promised kingdom on the earth. We invite you to study these important passages of Scripture in your own Bible at home, and remember that Jesus was a Jew who must be understood in his Jewish environment. Join us again as we continue to probe Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.